Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Charlie, you ready? I'm ready. All right. Three, two, one. Let's jam. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein, and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. In this episode, I speak with Charles Maguera, Chief Investment Officer of Altus Partners. Charlie finds himself at the helm of Altus from a non-traditional route. His career began at Goldman, where his experience spanned everything from asset-backed securities to liquid commodities. He then started a firm specializing in machine learning-driven sports betting before moving into cryptocurrency markets. Today, Charlie is betting that alternative strategies will play an increasingly important role for investors over the coming decade. We spend the majority of our conversation talking about Altus's investment stack, which is comprised of two components, an upstream signal layer and a downstream strategy layer. The signal layer is responsible for ingesting data and constructing a prediction curve for different futures markets. The strategy layer ingests these prediction curves and constructs a portfolio. Charlie discusses the types of signals Altus relies on, how they turn prediction curves into trade signals, and where risk management fits into the equation. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Charles Maguera. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you here in this discussion, which I think at face value, some people might say another Managed Futures podcast. They know I love Managed Futures. But I would urge listeners to really hold on because I think this is going to go in a really interesting, very different direction than other podcasts I've done in this space. So excited to have you on. Thank you for joining me. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Corey. I'm excited too. So Charlie, you have a pretty non-traditional banking background. Most people who go through the banking channel end up really much more specialized and on a much more linear path. But your background, if we take a look, you actually jumped across jobs and assets quite a bit. And I was hoping you could maybe quickly walk us through your background and share some of your thoughts and your approach to getting up to speed so quickly in all these different departments and assets that you worked in. Yeah, I jumped around sectors and products quite a lot, but I did have a good degree of career continuity. I spent my first 16 years in the business as a trader at Goldman Sachs across emerging markets, credit derivatives, structured products like structured reinsurance, mortgages, and then eventually I became the head of metals trading in the commodity department. So yes, it's been a pretty circuitous route. And then after that, I've been a tech entrepreneur, both in sports betting and crypto, and been working on managed futures for quite some time. And this does definitely seem like it's 
all over the place. But I just draw a couple of perhaps continuities through this circuitous journey. The first is I tended to be where the action is, whether it was the Argentina default right at the beginning of my career as an analyst on the emerging markets desk, the major downgrades of General Motors and Ford in 05, which was the so-called correlation crisis in the OTC credit market. I was a trader on the subprime desk at Goldman Sachs in the summer and fall of 08. That was super crazy. I've just been around lots of interesting businesses. And partially in the beginning phase of my career, I think it was just, I was rangy in a quick study. And so my superiors felt free to just move this kind of fungible human resource around. Later on, I really enjoyed moving between markets because it's a journey of discovery. Markets are interesting, right? There's all kinds of crazy things happening. And so I guess I was just more willing to take the nonlinear pathway because I felt like the operative principle was there's no higher return on equity in the long run than investment in human capital, especially your own. Now, that's definitely a debatable point because the specialized career path oftentimes pays the best. You become more obviously operating leverage for whoever's building a business in a particular vertical. But I think being between markets as a generalist, I think gives you more perspective that's transportable. I've definitely seen a lot of crazy stuff up close and personal, and I've traded a lot of markets successfully. And I think that's also good. I've also, by the way, made a lot of mistakes of various different flavors in lots of markets. And that also, I guess, involves its own (laughs) growth pathway. Are there any tips or tricks you would offer listeners who are considering a career switch to a different asset class? Yeah, I would say in my experience, it takes about two years to get up the curve, at least to maybe like the inflection point of the S-curve of knowledge. Like you'll never know everything there is to know, even if you spend 30 years in one market. But to get to like a working sort of professional grade practitioner's level. And in the early phase of my career, the only way that that was possible was with good teachers and mentors. And the financial industry is by and large an apprenticeship system. As you mature and get more experience and kind of know what to look for and understand some of the basics about transactionally how do markets work and the different kind of game theory involved in negotiating prices and stuff for the OTC business, workflows, just there's quite a lot to know, but some of these skills are transposable. And so I would say in later years, the pivots have been easier to do as a self-starter. And in the seven years since I've left Goldman, There's been quite a lot of self-directed study and then working on new things as a colleague as opposed to as a junior person being mentored. But yeah, it takes about two years, I'd say, to really get to the point where you start to find your sea legs. I want to stick on that concept of transposable concepts for a moment because your formative years were in OTC markets and structured products, and you really only moved to liquid products later in your career. Curious how this early experience shaped how you view the liquid macro space. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. I'd say the first thing is generally, at least in fixed income, a lot of what happens as an OTC trader in a bank is you get very, very specialized on your vertical, right? You know things that are orthogonal to all of your colleagues because you are so specialized, especially as a trader. And there's a couple of big thematic calls to make because your lane is so narrow. So you end up pretty undiversified. But to protect yourself from that, you also have the kind of constant flux 
of the transaction doing of just the normal flow, which puts a margin of safety into your annual PL. And a big part of your mandate is just earn the bid offer, facilitate liquidity, and anticipate supply and demand in a specialized way. And then another big part of your job is making sure that you're ingesting information from the other specialists around you and their generalist managers. Now, from a liquid markets perspective, look, the OTC markets have varying degrees of liquidity, so not all instruments are illiquid. But as a sort of stylized fact, I would say the positions are more frequently a marriage than a date versus, say, systematic trading in futures or equities or something. And so when you're at the pace of human execution and it is a more complex transactional process to source and remove the risk, the velocity in your main risk moments is slower. And that forces you to think thematically. It is harder, although not impossible, to subject stuff to the crucible of sort of statistical validation. It also tends to breed a focus on relative value because you're assessing constantly liquidity in pricing with some kind of inference of value from things that are more visible, right? And so that matrix of kind of value and cross-sectional relative value becomes just a natural instinct within your specialization as a discretionary kind of OTC guy or gal. And then one of the things that was the hardest, I would say, in the transition away from micro fixed income, which is really where I grew up. I was one of the first default swap traders at Goldman back in the day and trading structured RMBS. Like I would say generally those OTC markets will have complicated products, but simple market structures. So, and it's maybe hard to get the trade down, right? So in liquid markets, one of the hardest things to wrap your head around was like, the product might be simple, but the market structure is way more complex. And on top of that, unlike trading, let's say, OTC credit derivatives, it is a whole lot easier to frequently and judiciously exercise the option to be flat. So learning how to fold your cards at the table, right, and then re-up when conditions are more auspicious is just a very kind of different exercise in truly liquid macro markets than it is in more complex OTC stuff. And I'd say that whole kind of framework of like, how do I get flat and think less about sourcing entry points and exit points and more about time series predictions and trade sizing, I think is a pretty big difference. Can you expand on what you mean for a second when you say a market structure is more or less complex? Yeah. So there's sort of like two dimensions of complexity that you might have. I mean, this is pretty simplified, but... You could have a really complicated product, like let's say non-agency RMBS, right? That's a complicated product. You have to understand the whole loan pools. You have to understand the prepayment speeds. You have to understand the various nuances of how you service non-performing people in the various transition phases of non-performing. It's complicated. And from there, you can infer a kind of error bound around like what you think the vector of cash flows on the security looks like then you have some sort of valuation methodology, which amounts to a discount rate plus a spread, an appropriate riskless discount rate plus a spread of some kind, and some volatility modeling around that, right? That's a complicated animal. But generally speaking, at least post-crisis, there weren't that many people holding these things, and there weren't that many people who could buy them. So like you were a phone call away from understanding the vast majority of flows in the system. Take metals where I was the global head of metals trading at Goldman as a contrast. 
The product is super simple. It's a lump of molecules or a listed futures contract on a lump of molecules, which is a little bit more complicated, but not that much more complicated. And there's some nuances about exchange delivery in the warehouses. So there is some complexity in the product. But the market structure is literally every human being on planet Earth. And in particular, in the metals market, circa the mid-2010s, the dominance of totally opaque flows onshore in China in leading pricing meant that it was pretty hard to be a phone call or two away from really understanding the flow, especially when you add in how many electronic traders are in there too. So a much more complex set of market participants with varying degrees of incentives driving a lot more complexity in the price action. It's just a totally different thing. So before we jump to your work with Altus today, I can't help but touch on two points which you briefly mentioned, which was a move into sports betting as well as a move into crypto. And I can't let those go. So let's start with the sports betting because I think there's a lot of fun stuff to unpack there. I'm curious, maybe first and foremost, how the sports betting market compared to other markets that you had worked on previously, and maybe some of your biggest lessons learned in transitioning from traditional financial markets into the sports betting markets. For sure. So, I mean, it was quite different. Well, firstly, how did it happen? Well, I was ready to move on from being a trader in a bank. I wanted to sort of do something entrepreneurial. I was ready for the next phase. And I had a friend who founded a sports betting business that was focused on using machine learning for sports prediction, which seems like a great idea. I backed him and it was like, sports are a lot, they're pretty data intensive. It's a reasonably stationary problem, right? It's like the same thing over, the rules don't change. It's kind of the same thing over and over again. And so it was like, oh, and for me personally, I was like really intrigued with the idea of exploring the contact surface between a human and a computer because I had done very well as a discretionary OTC guy. And I would say like my first foray in commodities, I was fine on the thematic stuff, but all the tape reading stuff was a foreign skill set, as I just described. And so just taking the next leg of my career to kind of like work on electronic trading and machine learning, this is before machine learning and AI were cool. This is like 2015, 2016. It seemed like an interesting thing. And sports seemed like a really good way to do that because we could get paid to learn and then also we could hire the talent, which at that, you know, data science talent back then was, was more scarce than it is now. And it was like, if you tell people they can wear jeans and a t-shirt and think about sports all day, then maybe you can access the talent at a different price point than if you're making them think about treasury on basis or something. So that was kind of how we ended up there as the sort of first step on my own. And it was a totally different market, right? And I would say a couple of things. The first is number one, it's an asset with a basically two hour duration, which means the need for capital to intermediate the flow is intrinsically constrained by the short time horizon. Like basically a sports betting business is all income statement and no balance sheet, kind of hand waving. <laughs> so that was kind of the first thing. That also means that the barrier to entry is low because basically every sort of statistics autodidact in the world, like the first thing they do after they learn Python is, oh, maybe I can make money betting on sports. So. Sports betting as a trading business is like a zero out of 10 on business model innovation, even if it's like a 10 out of 10 on a technical challenge. And then because of the seasonality, the entropy changes right throughout the season, right? You know a lot more by the end of the season than you do at the beginning, but basically the market never gets dumber at predicting sports because it's totally stationary. And so because that combination of low capital intensivity, low barrier to entry and stationarity, it's actually pretty hard to get an edge in sports betting. 
And then finally, and I think this is more on the market structure, sports are basically an entertainment product more than they are a financial market, which means the vast majority of the flow does not ever see the light of day in secondary market trading. It just goes into a primary B2C operator where they're a lot more focused on retaining the customer and getting second and third deposits than they are in risk managing any one line item, at least within reason. Some huge concentrated things, a different thing, but basically, even if the customer wins once, they're probably going to just re-up and then lose later. And so the whole kind of idea of a big liquidity intermediator, I don't think it was that necessary. So it was kind of like a bit of a thesis violation, even though it seemed like a really interesting use case for machine learning. Now, I think there are a number of successful high-frequency sports betting shops, but it's really about high-frequency liquidity provision. It's really focused on in-play betting. And yeah, it just didn't seem as interesting once we kind of dove in as it seemed after, (laughs) or as it seemed before, rather. So, Well, you went from one interesting market to another with your pivot to crypto in 2018, which... Candidly, the timing of that seems pretty interesting for people who know the the history of the crypto market. That was pretty much right after the 2017 ICO bust. Like the market was not in a boom at that point. It was in a bust. Curious what some of the initial opportunities you pursued were. What was the catalyst for the transition? and, And how did that opportunity set change over time as the market evolved? Yeah. So because of all the sort of drawbacks of being a sort of secondary market sports specialist that I described, I should also add, there's one other kind of crucial aspect of sports trading, which is, I think, really kind of fundamentally different than most financial markets, which is because it's a 90-minute duration asset, if you think of a market as an interplay between a buildup of expectations and a resolution to fundamentals, that resolution to fundamentals happens incredibly fast in sports. And you have to have basically low latency action data because you're truing up to fundamentals constantly at a very quick wavelength. And in any event, you're always done at the end of two hours, basically. And again, the participants in the sports market would say, why would I hedge? I'm just trying to turn the velocity over as fast as possible, right? In crypto, by contrast, we had sort of watched the 2017 bubble unfold. And it looked a lot like blow-off tops that I'd seen in many other markets over the years. And that looked like an opportunity. I might be the only person in the world whose first trade in crypto was short in early 2018, it was just like, wow, this is a blow up top that's in the process of resolving. But bigger picture, it was like, wow, I have a team of data scientists and engineers who are good at integrating with pretty non-standardized, shall we say, platforms on the internet. And this might be a good use case because literally nobody in crypto ever said, why would I hedge, right? It's an infinite duration asset. I shouldn't say literally nobody ever said that because now it looks like there are some people who did not say that, but you take my point. And so it seemed like a really interesting and dynamic market that was very liquidity constrained and that a lot of the techniques that we were thinking about might be applicable to. And so I decided to pivot the business to crypto. I think the other really interesting thing about crypto is in addition to the market dynamism and the complex and definitely non-stationary market structure, So that non-stationarity means there's a lot of value for a human beyond just project managing engineering, right? Like there's a lot to understand and it changes. So that was interesting. But in addition to all that, I had the experience of looking into crypto and going like, okay, sure, this feels like a really wild, high velocity, 
online gambling market. There are certainly aspects of that. But also, there's a really deep intellectual there there, right? And like the deeper you dig in, the more you find. And even now, I feel like crypto gets a pretty bad rap in light of the unwinding of the bubble and all the crazy things that have happened in crypto. But there is an intellectual there there. There are fundamentally pro-social value propositions. And I like that as well. Like building an asset-based pass-through system built around atomized balance sheets and self-custody is potentially a technological solution for too big to fail. Making value transfer with low friction a ubiquitous feature in software and transactionalizing the internet with price discovery, like that's also a good idea. Like the problem that is not that it's a bad idea. The problem is maybe that's too good an idea. A very senior person at Goldman once told me it was also true about securitization after subprime. Like the problem is not it's a bad idea. It's too good an idea. That experience of going deep and going like, wow, there's a lot here. And there's something really powerful at the human level about the fact that it grew up organically, fundamentally as a retail movement, where engineers are saying, maybe we could do a better job on the system, I think was super compelling and remains compelling. It just comes with a lot of baggage because it's like the whole cross-section of humanity with pretty low barriers. Again, so you're going to get a lot of craziness in there too. All right, let's finally dive into what you're doing today with Altus. And to set the table, can you give us a quick background on the firm before you got there and then since you've gotten there? Yeah, so Altus, my firm, where I am now CIO, is a pretty long-established managed futures specialist asset manager. And it was founded in 2000 with a big focus on trend following. And one of the partners there had been a board member at my sports betting company, which is how I got to know them. And Altus had a very successful run as a trend follower while trend did well in the sort of 2000s, and then had a less successful run as a trend follower in the 2010s post kind of QE. And you've, in many of your other podcasts, I'm sure discussed why that may have happened as a broad market theme, but it certainly happened to Altus. And so at the top tick, the assets were just short of 2 billion, then performance was poor and a lot of the assets redeemed. And the team did a lot of work basically refactoring the systems into multi-risk premium and did an admirable job kind of with the relaunch refactored version of the strategy in the late 2010s. And then tragically, Svishromashevsky, the CIO of Altus, died in a freak accident while skiing in an avalanche. And the remaining partners reached out to me and said, hey, we think there's a lot of IP here. It needs a new kind of captain of the ship. Do you want to have a look? And I spent a lot of time looking at it and as you recall, my kind of mission in terms of long-term professional development, it was and remains being the best trader I can possibly be. And I thought, oh gosh, here's a platform that's like totally operationally burned in. It's really tight with all of its workflow processes and regulatory footprint. And there's good IP in here. And I've got a chance to acquire a stake in it at a fraction of replacement cost to save myself quite a lot of time. And this particular bit of IP is a good complement to my own core skills that I developed in the previous sort of 20 years in the market. Now, I'm a decent thematic discretionary guy, decent relative value guy, I understand derivatives valuation, understand market structure, understand negotiation. And here I've got a computer that's good at reading the tape right? And good at sizing trades. And so that felt like a very natural extension of my skill set and a good filling in of the gaps. 
And also, a lot of the IP felt pretty generalizable to other markets, including crypto. And so I acquired a stake in Altus and began work on improving the futures trading system alongside the team at Altus. And then as my time in the crypto market came to an end, and that market kind of is retrenching, and my own conviction that we are on the eve of a commodity super cycle, and that it's probably a bull market and liquid alternatives, it just made sense to basically go full-time on this, given my view structurally on the markets. And so that's what I've been doing. I want to talk a bit about that IP that you saw at Altus. And in our pre-call, you described the tech stack to me as really comprising two different parts. What you described as an upstream signal layer and a downstream strategy layer. And I want to attack each of these parts individually. But first, I was hoping maybe we could take a step back and you could talk about why the choice of this design? What are the benefits of thinking about this upstream downstream design? And what are potentially some of the drawbacks? I'll start with the drawback of anything that's, I guess, rigidly componented is going to potentially constrain your thought process. It may like reduce the spanning set of the design space that you're operating within. And there may be potentially missed opportunities there or rigidities there that you regret later. And that is certainly a risk. But there's many advantages to having a thoughtfully componented system. I suspect our throughput is not that different than most. We have data, we build signals out of them. With the signals, we make predictions. We combine the predictions and then have a sort of aggregated prediction. And then downstream, once we have all these predictions, we then have a trading strategy that takes trades based on the predictions. And one of the nice things about a system like that is if you improve any component, you're likely to improve the overall strategy. And that's nice because what it means is you can get really focused in a very specific way on the scope of work of what you're doing and begin to ask questions that are functionally portable, right? As opposed to if you were to take a sort of waterfall kind of straight through strategy development process, what you might find is you have lots and lots of things that are put on. They work for reasons that may or may not be transparent. And you have this hard problem of like, how do I allocate capital between them? And with this kind of a design that we have, which is like basically data, feature, prediction, portfolio construction, execution, and monitoring, with that kind of a flow, you can get really focused on a more narrowly defined problem and get really good at it and then recognize that it can uplift the whole thing. It's also quite flexible for building other things, which is also good. Can you talk a little bit about how the signal layer operates and what the actual output of this layer looks like? Yeah. So we believe that there are multiple risk premia on offer in the market at any given moment. And we want to try to use them to predict future returns. So what we do is we look at some of these alphas, which are pretty well-known, like trend and carry. We have our own approach to how to do that properly, but trend and carry are like obvious alphas that interplay with each other and, and so on. We look at trend and carry. We look at intermarket lead lag relationships, right? which we think is also important. And then we have some cross-sectional relative value stuff that we spent a lot of time thinking about in an attempt to, I guess, get more predictive power in a way that's not correlated to trend. 
out of the market. You know, and that's an attempt really to do two things. One is to solve some of the problems that are well known with trend following, which is like you're not on your high water mark most of the time. You have this really nice skewness in trend, but of course, also sometimes it feels like you're the dumb money and the last guy at the party staying too long. Like you're the dumb guy who buys the top and sells the bottom. And so what we tried to do is have some degree of alpha that works at other times and attempt to smooth those returns and also have more alpha, right? Just have more alpha. Because if you're on a sharp of one or one and a half, you know, life's a lot easier than if you're on a sharp of 0.5. So what we've done is we have these alphas. We've spent a lot of time on them trying to make sure that they're robust and not overfit. And then we use them. We try to make sure that they're not correlated, at least historically going back over big robust data sets. And then it's basically like, how do I blend these indicators into some kind of overall regression that creates predictions? And the way we think about our predictions are on multiple time horizons. So we think about predicting a day forward, both risk and return, one day into five day, and then five day into 15 days. So we're predicting up to 20 business days out. And we parameterize that prediction for every asset as a curve of information ratios. So we can get a sense of the relationship of the signal strength between markets. And this normalizes to risk. So it kind of allows you to make apples to apples comparisons between instruments. In our pre-call, you said to me, quote, Reliance on market data alone for generating signal is a potential weakness in a world of increasing non-stationarity. What did you mean by that? Yeah, okay. So I'll tell you a story, I guess, in human terms rather than quant terms first, which is the world is changing. And the world is changing, I would argue, more quickly than it has in really in the pre-COVID world. And that's basically because from 08 to 2020, you've had kind of this like dominance of a Fed put and a policy framework that is designed for volatility suppression. Like you basically had, I think the 08 crisis was scary enough for policymakers that it was like, okay, our goal is to stop transitions in institutional structures. Like we let Lehman go. That was a really scary mistake because pretty soon we got scared that the ATMs would run out of money. And so our goal is basically to ossify incumbency. And that's really what QE did. It also made, as a function of that, the cost of capital really cheap, which has allowed basically a lot of these risk premia to compress and the returns on offer from actively trading and then attempting to rebalance them, perhaps not that great as relative to transaction costs and not that much alpha in them overall, which I think is a good part of the reason why trend falling did so poorly. After COVID, we've lived in a world where there's a greater threat of deglobalization, a greater threat of geopolitical instability, much more aggressive policy interventions in markets and industrial policy. And all of these things from a statistical perspective smell like regime change. They smell like big coefficients that matter a lot changing, like the correlation coefficient between bonds and equities now that inflation's on the bag. They also feel much more like a world with multiple binding constraints in terms of what policymakers can do and what market participants can do. And of course, the most binding constraint of all from a market participant perspective, at least in liquid markets, is just the cost of capital. Because how much leverage can you run at five versus at one, depending on the riskless benchmark against which every cost of capital is priced, right? And so when I think about that, 
it's sort of like, okay, well, the world is changing and the structure of all these economic relationships as the sort of global supply chain graph and the global capital flow graph continues to rewrite could change quite a lot. And that means a lot of these statistical relationships could break down, become different. And so I think as a design principle in building trading strategies, you're going to want to be more adaptive than you were previously. Right? In the old world of recent memory, it was sort of like, well, if in the end, no matter what sort of high-minded quant language I use, if in the end I'm betting on financial asset inflation, I'm going to make money. Right, Multiple expansion and carry basically both make money. In a world where the discount rate is all over the place and not trending, perhaps, or trending in the wrong direction and then stabilizing with a whole lot more volatility, that's a totally different animal. And so, yeah, that's what I meant, I guess, by being prepared for non-stationaries. And as a design principle, again, the idea is greater adaptiveness in the system. And that comes with risk because if you're going to fit response functions to data with shorter windows of data, you're going to end up with less statistical robustness, more memorization in your system of noise, which probably means bigger predictions. And so the risk of getting too aggressive on that with that greater adaptiveness is definitely high from an overfit perspective and from an overconfidence perspective in terms of trade sizing. So it's not just the true negatives on your predicts that, that hurt, it's also the false positives. But that doesn't mean it's the wrong idea because the market structure is moving faster. And I believe that the pace of these non-stationary events are going to increase over the next couple of years as we go through our fourth turning and rearrange institutional relationships. So, and it also means opportunity, of course, right? Because big dislocations in the market obviously mean that there are big price changes that you can lever up in futures markets and take advantage of. And futures are really attractive as an asset class for that because the leverage is cheap it's well-defined. And yes, from a structural perspective, it's risky, but it's not as risky as OTC leverage provision because clearinghouse margin is pretty high up the waterfall in terms of counterparty risk and all that. So, What about data sources that aren't directly related to the market? How are you thinking about ingesting alternative data sets? Yeah, so alternative data is really exciting because it offers the potential for information content that is not in just the tape of prices, right? It's like you're allowing a system to ingest new orthogonal information, and that seems really potentially helpful in raising your predictive edge when you're predicting the market. Now, that said, there's a whole bunch of challenges with it. The first is that lots of alternative data may already be just captured by the price action. So it is possible that the market's already ingested the information and you could do just as well slicing something off of market data at a fraction of the cost. Second is it's fiddly and it's non-contemporaneous often. And so just getting to the point of how do I get an apples to apples ingestion of this in a way that is properly out of sample versus the forward-looking returns and so forth, that's just a big complicated ETL job, which can be a challenge. And then there's some more challenges we found on integrating it in, which is like, a lot of these data sets don't have the same amount of history. And if you have an asynchronous amount of history, then if you're building systems that are learning from data, you face with this really difficult challenge, which is given my different sample counts and my different potential indicator streams, how do I think about blending them in a way that is thoughtful, 
not too heavy on recent experience, thinks about statistical robustness, but also accounts for non-stationary. So kind of adjusting the temperature of learning is a big challenge there. And then you have another problem, which is that a lot of these sources of information may only pertain to certain markets in the cross-section of what you're dealing with. And then you have to think about like, okay, I've got something that seems pretty good in this specific case, but it means I need to think about its interaction with everything else in a subset only of the cross-section of my assets, which means I'm losing robustness and sample count potentially. And also I've got to think about how to blend that in. And so all those things are pretty big challenges. And for what it's worth, you know, we've done quite a lot of work on that, but have not yet launched any signals from alternative data. But it is, I guess, in our ambition to do that, because, of course, we would like to be able to predict the market better with more granular information content. So you have this market data, this non-market data, all being ingested by the signal layer, the output being these prediction curves that you create. And that's what the strategy layer is ultimately ingesting. So how do you go from, at that strategy layer, prediction curve to portfolio? Yeah, so we're pretty simplistic about it in a certain sense. But I would say, I guess the first insight that we kind of build everything around is we think it's important to predict over multiple horizons because we live in a world with transaction costs. And in a world with transaction costs and dynamism in the market, there isn't a single optimal portfolio. There's just a trade-off between transaction costs and the signal horizon you're attempting to monetize. And so we think of portfolio construction as a dynamic scheduling problem that is intrinsically related to the friction of the underlying markets that we're trading, which of course is not constant and gets bigger the bigger your scale is. And it's very different across markets. Right? You can imagine if there were no transaction costs, you would not be in the long-term prediction game. You just try to predict the next time step for however little tiny bit of edge you have and then just rebalance everything and go again. And you go as small as you can, right? because of course, that's taking your bet count up. And as long as there's any positive edge, you'll extract some money from that. Right? But in the world of transaction costs, as an active trader, we're not in the passive market making game at all. This partners is just too infrastructure intensive. We're never going to go up against like the Virtus and Shaws of the world. But as an active trader taking the market, we need to be thinking about the time horizon that we're expecting a return over. And so what we do is we look at all the different time horizons. We look at the expected returns relative to the transaction costs. And we optimize to maximize the expected growth rate of our capital or of our NAV. So that geometric mean maximization, you can think of it as a fractional Kelly criteria betting system. And the upshot of that is there's no volatility target on our strategy or our strategies, I should say. We're not talking about any one product here, but there's no particular volatility target because we're going to take more risk when we think we have a greater statistical edge and less risk when we don't think we have a greater statistical edge. We think that's a really desirable property of a trading strategy in general because you don't want to force your system to take risk if it doesn't have edge because of volatility drag. Volatility is the enemy of compounded returns. So I think that's a pretty important thing. And no volatility target does not mean we have no risk control. What we do instead is we use the margin to equity number on our system as basically the kind of high level leverage control knob. And we specify a cap on our margin to equity. 
And then we just optimize, we effectively tell the system, go do the geometric mean maximization as if your assets were only equal to your NAB times your margin to equity cap, which makes it a transaction cost native intertemporal fractional Kelly Benning system. So that's kind of high level how we do it. And you can imagine the input for all those things is basically a transaction cost model, your existing trades, a return expectation on every instrument in the investable universe, and the covariance of the assets across the investable universe. And it is effectively a mean variance optimization, just one that's dynamic. So let's say all your signals create a strong prediction for the same asset in the same direction. Talking about not having that explicit volatility targeting, using that margin to equity risk system and wanting to take risk when you think you have alpha, if you have all the signals leaning in the same direction, is this a case where risk ultimately should get pressed? Or is this a case where we should actually take a step back and say, no, actually, we need a second check. Risk should actually be somewhat modulated or we might get out over our ski tips here. Yeah, so it is possible that all the signals align and then our weighting creates a more aggressive aggregate prediction. That is possible. And in that case, we will take more risk because that's what feels Kelly optimal. Now that said, getting concentrated in any one thing is still going to add a lot of volatility to the portfolio. So it's still naturally gonna hold off, especially because the overall amount of edge you have is still quite small <laughs> relative to the overall risk involved. Like I would say like our best predictions maybe predict 0.15 of a monthly volatility. So we're not saying, oh yeah, like we're 90% confident on something, like, like we might be 15 or 20% confident on something. And even then, you know, we might be wrong. So yes, we'll press the risk, but it will still naturally be curtailed. I say there's another sort of interesting thing too, which is anytime you're using a kind of naive mean variance optimization, of course, your system is going to build really big spread positions and correlated things if you think they have different return expectations. And generally, that can be spooky because if you've got something wrong, you might be really levered and have a problem. Like that's the road to perdition from a risk management perspective. And so what we do is there's lots of ways that people handle this. Like you might use a two-factor risk management system like capping the aggregate leverage by instrument or by sector. You might do something like put a ridge bump down the covariance matrix and boost the volatility of individual assets, right? And sort of tell your system that idiosyncratic risk counts for more basically than you're actually observing in the market. We don't like to do that because we think it's important to have an accurate representation of our best guess of what the measured risk really is, right? So that kind of like ridge bumps or correlation clustering or that kind of stuff, like we don't really do that. What we like to do instead in plain English is to say, well, geez, you've got these really divergent opinions and these really correlated things, but history says that that's pretty unlikely. Like maybe your opinions should not be more granular than your risk management methodology. And so we end up topping and tailing stuff in relationship to the cross-section of other stuff. And that naturally enforces diversification. It clips a lot of the tall trees in terms of the predicts and basically forces more diversification in the system. But we do it at the prediction layer. Like we do it by trying to be humbler. Our research suggests 
that that kind of an approach where you're basically letting additional cross-sectional information into your predictions, like pretty late in the processing game, we think that's like a really good thing to do for the risk management side, but it also seems to have a really nice result, which is that it seems to uplift the predictive accuracy of the system, which is like taking an ensemble of information and thinking about everything should relate to each other. Number one, it makes your opinion smaller, but you end up predicting more. And that's a really interesting result, like less is more. So that's kind of how we think about that. In our pre-call, you said, quote, as a design principle of the system, we believe that change in the market is accelerating. We want the system to be more adaptive than less adaptive to this market state. I think you started to touch on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to ask it as a standalone question because I think it's a powerful view that you are holding. So the question here is really, what is your thesis for this view and how does it actually impact the design of your systems? Right, well, the kind of broad-based macro thesis, I think I kind of covered a little bit before, but the basic idea is we're in a world with a greater degree of institutional volatility like people are reassessing how they're all going to get along. So every dependency graph in the world, whether that's a capital flow or commodity flow, a product flow with customers, the stuff is in a state of flux. And crucially behind the scenes, the main policy choices, which have been volatility minimization, now in many examples recently are in volatility maximization. Like an old man gets upset and decides to invade a country. Guess what? Like all hell breaks into the market. Some other guy decides to massively constrict the cost of capital, right? And guess what? Everything in the system changes. Somebody decides, and this will be controversial, but decides that they want to lie about a public health issue, right? And then suddenly everything changes. So you're just looking at a world where policy decisions are being taken and they're no longer being taken for vol minimization. And that involves structural shifts, right? And of course, a trend, broadly defined, ought to benefit, I guess, from some first principle because a trend is the manifestation of persistent fundamental change in the world's relationships as reflected by prices. Like a trend is the process by which a market ingests information to reflect change, like persistent change, not just noise, but persistent change. So trend ought to do okay, you would think. But I think one of the questions is like, well, could we do better, right? And like we described with some of the alphas, there are these other premia that are out there. And as a general principle, capital is more constrained. So probably you can be paid more to take all these premium. But in the end, what is a premium really, but just a predictive edge on prices. And so thinking about how to blend your predictive edges on different kinds of premium is a pretty important part of the game. And then the question is, well, to get to your question on adaptation, it's like basically, well, if I've learned how to blend these in 2014, maybe the world's different enough because of all these non-stationarities that I need to be conditioning my methodology in some way. So a good example would be during the March 2020 COVID implosion, the system we had running at the time, which is not the current system, it took too long to stop out of equities. It was like, well, we can see what's coming. This is really scary, right? And it's like, yeah, but I've got a long window for calibrating my volatility expectation of my bar and whatnot. And then it crashed. It was like, oh gosh, the trend is really terrible. I'm out. And then it was like, okay, well, now I'm going to take too long to stop back in. Because now that the Fed's backs off the market, the market's up, vol's coming down. Once that spike in vol is out of the look-back window, then I'll buy it. And it's like, well, I'd prefer to buy it before it goes up 20%. I don't know about you. So like that responsiveness seemed kind of wrong. So 
one example that we've done is we've taken multiple lookback windows for our volatility computations on a realized basis and looked at a greater of. And what that will do is like the spikes will come into scope, you'll stop out sooner, and then they'll leave the scope sooner, and you'll stop back in sooner. And that's just, again, like an implementation of a sort of idea that the velocity of what you're doing should be faster. Now, that's a design trade-off because that could come with the expense of greater portfolio turnover, false breakouts. Like if you're going to adapt more quickly, like I said, you could overfit, you could churn, pay too much TCA. But wherever that design trade-off was before in QE, my strong view is it's further toward the adaptive side now because the pace of fundamental change is increasing. So if you fit something to that data set in the QE world, you might want to think about making whatever your response functions are more elastic now. And probably that's not a bad thing. So one of the things we haven't spoken at all about yet is any specific product concept here, right? This has all been very high level design-based thinking, which I really appreciate. So I want to take it a little bit granular, maybe not talk about a specific design uh, product so much as product concepts or how you think of productization, because you do offer strategies in a number of structures, including hedge funds and ETFs. So I want to get your thought as to your approach of productizing your investment stack and how does the actual structure you choose impact the ultimate design? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll go in a couple parts. So one question is the product management question, which is why choose which particular design for what particular job? And then the second bit is, okay, within those product management buckets, what do you end up with? On this first point, again, my strong view is that passive investing is probably the wrong toolkit for the next 10 years. And that's because we are no longer in a broad-based asset inflation only. Like there are more risk premium in the world. So if you think again, from a design principle of an investment strategy or a product, what you're thinking about is like, okay, if I'm going to put capital to work, how much information in the current state of the world should I incorporate in that decision? The passive investor says, I should ignore all of it because statistically it's in the too hard bucket. Plus the market always goes up in the end. That's a view, right? Now I might say, well, that's predicated on the sample span of like 150 year baby boomer lifespan, which is not a very large sample count. But even if you sort of push back on that idea, so I might be like, oh, well, stocks always go up, might be an overfit. But let's say you're kind of bullish on human enterprise and all that, and stocks do always go up. Okay. You might still say, well, okay, on the one end, I could completely ignore the market state. And on the other end, I could have some super, super complicated, heavily conditioned, massively overfit thing. My view is like probably right now, neither of those extremes are the right answer. So we all agree that the massively overfit thing is probably not the right thing, but the completely blind state independent decision making, I would also argue is wrong. And like, we don't even think about it because it's the water that we swim in in financial markets. There's however many trillion of passive assets. And it's like, we just don't even think that it's there because it doesn't feel, but it's massive. So our view as a house is, well, on that design spectrum of ignore everything or take everything into account with massive overconfidence, like there's a happy medium somewhere along the line, which makes judicious use of like well-proven risk premium phenomena like trend and carry and so forth. And probably you can do a bit better. So that's kind of the high level. And so as a product manager, what you're trying to do is deliver something like that that you can kind of hang your hat on and feel confident about. 
right? Or that the customer can. And it has a clear use case for the customer, which is, I get it. You want absolute returns. You want diversification. You want liquidity. You want transparency. You want good governance. You want all these things. So firstly, with the strategy, how can I give you that, right? Well, a positive absolute return and a negative correlation to all the liquid things you already own are probably pretty desirable, which naturally are used for trend volatility and arbitrage, broadly defined. And volatility and arbitrage and trend and carry, but carry is really the 40 and the 60-40, so maybe, maybe not. But maybe it's helpful in as much as it can give you some insight into how to dynamically trade the market. And so as a product manager, like I want to give you a negative correlation, that positive return in the context of a world that's likely to benefit more active trading than recent memory would suggest. So then the question is, okay, cool. Well, if we do that in hedge fund format, there's a pretty wide design space of the choices we can make. We can trade a lot of instruments. We can trade them at varying frequencies, including intraday. And we can deliver you these statistical alphas or risk premium, whatever you want to call it. Maybe the beta is the alpha, but there's a risk premium in there. And there's a fair amount of alpha and how to switch between them. And the value proposition is the diversification to a high degree, right? Because futures are really good at moving a lot of VAR around really efficiently. And so managed futures are great if your goal is to actively trade and move VAR around the system. And you can deliver that diversification without too much specialization because you've got that and solve that kind of product design. And then the question is like, okay, well, that's great. If I do that now in terms of the different product buckets, they come with different limitations. Like I said, a hedge fund, there's quite a lot that you can do. In an ETF, there's less that you can do, right? You're on a daily rebalance, best case. Generally speaking, the universe of tradables is more constrained because it needs to be tractable for market makers. Also, it's pretty hard to build monoline factor specialized product in ETFs because you can't really gather critical mass from an AUM perspective. So the strategy probably needs to work as an absolute return buy and hold so that the client can kind of set it and forget it. Right? I think that's important. But in the end, you're trying to solve a problem for a customer, which is give me this anti-correlation with transparency and liquidity. So that's really the design philosophy. But again, the underlying thesis is Liquid alts have a really important role to play, and that role is increasing in importance in this environment for the foreseeable. And then the nice thing about the ETF structure in particular is it's a disintermediated distribution model by and large, right? It's listed, so you've effectively outsourced a lot of the manual effort of DD to listing requirements. And it's got to be tight, obviously. And with that disintermediated distribution model, it can scale. And also it's more discoverable because it's listed. And so our bet working on ETF strategies is we want to deliver a product that's really good and that satisfies the need of the return stacking RIA and the need ultimately of the end client for that true diversifier that actually has positive expected return. And so that's what we're striving to do. Now, obviously, past performance is not indicative of future results, but that's what at least what we're trying to do. And in the hedge fund, I think you can go a little bit more for just the highest octane kind of absolute return you want and then modify in SMAs basically on a per client basis, depending on what their specific needs are. So it's a little bit more customizable as well. So you shared quite a few thoughts about why you think alternatives are 
appropriate for this market environment or perhaps more appropriate for the coming market environment. But I'm curious about why specifically you're looking towards ETFs as a vehicle for delivery of alternative strategies. Why not just focus only on the hedge fund delivery mechanism? Well, look, the hedge fund mechanism is obviously really flexible. And of course, we have a hedge fund. But on ETFs, we think that there is potential to deliver a pretty superior value proposition to a much larger total addressable market because of the ease of use with which advisors can allocate to them. And of course, not every advisor has access to hedge funds. And even if they do, the matching process and figuring it all out is quite hard. It's, it's quite nice to just have a much more streamlined process that's disintermediated with some standardization. I think that's a really important consideration. And then when you think about kind of the value proposition of these types of active strategies, for a super high-end hedge fund, sometimes people kind of conflate two separate things, especially in the multi-manager platforms. Like one aspect is the returns enhancement and risk reduction coming from diversification across lots of different factors and lots of different markets. I think there's this misperception, by the way, that even if you have two liquid markets, that they have to be kind of contemporaneous and no arbitrage between them. But even if the markets are liquid, oftentimes the client bases that drive the flows in them are not liquid. And so there is an opportunity, I would say, just cross-market sort of relative value just structurally in the market, I think, just because of the way the markets are set up. And that is one of the value propositions. Another thing, though, is so that's that diversification, that multi-factor diversification. And then, of course, the other thing is in a really high-end hedge fund, you'll have a lot of specialists who are with really deep domain expertise scraping every little bit out of what's on offer in the market by virtue of their superior expertise, or at least that's the claim. Now, whether that is worth paying for is a different question because obviously it's expensive to have that kind of an operation set up, but there are some people who run things like that to great success. So at the higher end, the super premium product, those two USPs, which are specialized alpha plus factor diversification are kind of at the end of the day, the USP with good risk management, obviously. In the ETF wrapper, at least a portion of that can still be delivered, which is the factor diversification benefit and returns enhancement from that. And when you think about the factors that people bet on in a 60-40 model, it's basically the excess return from carry and duration and the excess return from the equity risk premium. And we've just come off a 40-year period where real yields went from super high to super low. And it may be the case that we've just seen a sort of outlier to the upside kind of returns profile to those specific factors. But in the super long run, as some of your other podcasts have alluded to, there are other factors in the market that also have positive expected return risk premium associated with them, but may require active management to access things like trend or cross-sectional relative value. And those things can be delivered. And for the next decade or two, when we're in a world with much higher inflation volatility and just higher cost of capital in general, I think it's debatable whether you're going to see a sort of top decile outcome in the returns to the carry premium and the ERP. And so what we think is that there is likely to be some structural pressure for different diversifiers kind of creating fund flows into other kinds of active kind of factor product that delivers the only free lunch, which is really on offer in financial markets, to the best of my knowledge anyway, which is diversification. 
And to that end, we've done a JV with Simplify in order to stand up some of our IP in that more accessible and scalable wrapper. And you know, we're optimistic on that. One of my favorite questions to ask some of the potentially more opaque portfolio managers that come on this show is what due diligence question they think people should be asking them. When I asked you that, you said the question people should ask you is, quote, how do you think about non-stationary risk? And so what I wanted to ask you is, why do you think that's an insightful question and how would you answer it? I think it's an important question because it really gets to the heart of some of the biggest debates in investing. One of the biggest ones, of course, is active versus passive. But another one is quant versus discretionary. And I think it was one of your recent podcasts where your guest said, you know, the discretionary guys have problems with over salience bias on whatever they're focused on. They have problems with trade sizing. They have problems like ignoring the underlying factor exposures and factor edges that are out there. All true, at least in my experience, as a reasonably successful discretionary trader. Those are definitely problems on my skill set. And then on the quant side, there's a totally different thing, which is like an arrogance of belief in the model, an over-reliance on data, an underappreciation for how much markets can change and how fat the tails really are. Like generally speaking, if you're data-driven, you're kind of like always in some sense going past performance is indicative of future results. So to me, like if you have somebody who's like flogging data-driven strategies, a really legit question is just like, well, what do you do if the world changes? And one good answer to that is, well, if I'm in the trend following business, if the world changes, eventually I'm going to bet on it changing even more. (laughs) I think that's actually a pretty good answer because that's what makes trend attractive, basically, is it's got this skewness. It's got this sort of anti-correlation to regime change, right? It's one of the few strategies that makes money on average, let's say, in non-stationary events. But again, it gets to this principle, kind of be more thoughtful about it, of how adaptive are you really? And I think it's an open question. When I think about the whole kind of workflow that a quant takes or often takes, which is looking at just a bunch of data, attempt to learn something from the data, backtest how I might have done with varying degrees of believability, depending on how good a job we've done of doing that and how hygienic we've been about out of sample and walk forward and all that. When I think about that, what you're trying to do broadly defined is learn generalized patterns from the past without accidentally memorizing the noise. And when I think about the future, I'm like, okay, well, the future is some combination of repeated patterns of history and then the genuinely novel. So it makes sense structurally in some sense that like any strategy when it goes live will underperformance backtest. Or you might be because you're like, oh, well, if it's repeated patterns in the past, I'll probably do a good job. And then if it's the genuinely novel unfolding as the future turns into the present, there, I guess at best I'm a push or maybe I've even gotten something wrong. So it sort of makes sense in some sense for any backtest to sort of like outperform live. And it may not be from alpha decay. It just might be this time it's different. It's not entirely different, but it's also not entirely the same. So I think one question is, Again, in that adaptiveness in the response function, whatever you're doing from the data, it's sort of like, well, how do I do that? And then again, as a principle of strategy design, you're saying, okay, well, when the future seems novel versus the data set I fit over, is history a circle or is it an arrow? Are we just repeating the patterns of some other regime? And so things like an exponential decay on my data to get my signal, like that might not be right because 
the signal that pertained 35 years ago might actually be more relevant now given a shift, right? Or is it like, wow, something totally new has changed? It's just like, it's an unknown, unknown. So how you think about that cyclicality versus sort of linearity of history, I think is, is an important concept in the design thing. And then what we do is we try to think of economic first principles that probably don't change at all, like ever. For example, if you run out of storage, the cost of spots going to a lot lower, <laughs> right? So you're looking for pockets of stationarity at a low enough level of the primitive that you can then build up what appears to be non-stationary regimes in the data, but they're still on solid ground from first principles. And so when we think about R&D agenda, we're spending a lot of time kind of thinking about that kind of thing, which is sure a top-down inference of how are the way things can change and attempt to measure that and infer the market state, or building something up from relationships that you can confidently say are definitely stationary. And even then they might not be because nothing is definite, obviously, in trading or in the future. But yeah, that'd be the kind of answer I would like a PM to tell me. But of course, I think that because this is the thing we built. Well, you led me nicely where I wanted to go next, which is a question about what your research pipeline looks like today. So there's explicitly that question, but maybe a little bit more nuanced because you do have this separation between the signal layer and the strategy layer. As someone who's helping set the course for research, how do you think about the dedication of resources to research in the signal layer versus research in the strategy layer? Right. So there's a risk management piece to this because research takes time, which means it takes resource. It's an investment decision that may or may not pay out because research is risky. So you may or may not do a bunch of work and then discover that it was worth doing. Then there's also a product management question to this, which is, we have investors, they've been sold on a particular product idea or strategy. And if you come out with something that's totally different, it may not do what it says on the tin, and that could be a problem. So when we think about prioritizing R&D, we wanna have a mix of the obvious incremental things to do that just make you a better professional operator in your lane. There's always a to-do list of those things, but they have different degrees of marginal improvement. And how much marginal improvement they could have might be condition dependent. And so you take a view on that, right? Like, so for example, right now, we're doing a lot of work on intraday data because we want to reduce the response latency in our systems from market signal to action under that basic increased adaptiveness principle. Things are going fine, but it would be nice be better. And we think that that might not even just be an alpha generation thing. We also think it's important from a risk management perspective. Like, even if it doesn't show up in the expected return, if it changes the skewness and the kurtosis, especially on the left tail, that's a great result, right? That makes the product better. So I'd say incremental improvements to execution, to risk modeling, and just to latency, like all those things seem like obvious things to do that anybody would want kind of no matter what direction you're taking your system. So we prioritize the incremental stuff the highest because there's not going to be any question of product market fit from a product management perspective. And it's always table stakes for just getting better after that. Looking a little bit further ahead, kind of at the generalized thing, then I guess the question becomes, well, if the game ultimately is ingest information and make predictions at one side and then subject to having predictions, trade it the best you can, given the risk and the transaction costs, Right now, I would say the trade the best you can bit 
and the risk management stuff for the kind of trading we're doing right now, which is kind of diversified directional basket trading, the kind of mean variance framework we have seems pretty good from a risk management perspective, but reducing latency would make it better. But if we were going to do a different style of trading, like really big cross-sectional spreads or curve trades or calendar spreads or that kind of thing, or less liquid markets where we had to be a lot more thoughtful about liquidity modeling, then I could imagine changing the risk management profile downstream in the strategy a lot. But right now we've got a diverse enough world and enough ideas on alpha generation that we're really more focused on the prediction layer beyond those incremental improvements in the system. And so when we think about that, it's like we brainstorm as a team and we try to justify what we're doing in economic logic or domain specific expertise. Right. And that's another benefit of being a generalist, which is we've seen a lot of, as a team, we've seen a lot of things besides just futures time series over the course of a life. And so maybe that gives us a bit of a different perspective on attempting to articulate frameworks that then the computer can listen to. Yeah. And I would say in general, we're getting more thoughtful about, again, adaptiveness, which ultimately means increased conditioning of predictions based on market state, even though that road in extremis is the road to perdition of overfit, clearly. Again, on that sort of design spectrum, probably right now you want more, like incrementally more of that than you did before. And so that's really what we're focused on. So we've come to the last question of the episode, and and I know you've listened to the podcast before, and you know that every season I ask a new question for that season that is a consistent question I ask to every guest. What you don't know is that you were actually the first guest of season seven. I've decided that we're striking a new season. You're the first guest. And this question is inspired by you in something you said in our pre-call. I love this idea of obsessions, what people are obsessed with. So the question is going to be, what are you obsessed with? You already told me what you're obsessed with on the pre-call. Your recent obsession is this concept of asset duration. As the last question to this episode, I was hoping you could explain to me, what is it about asset duration that has caught your fascination and why is it such an obsession for you right now? Yeah, well, you're right. That is my obsession right now as a market practitioner. I think it was Warren Buffett who famously said, in the short term, the market is a voting machine, but in the long term, the market is a weighing machine. To put that more formally, there's a process of expectations formation, which is all about feedback within the crowd. And my theory, I can't back this up with data yet, but my theory is that that feedback is more powerful the less it's subjected to the crucible of realizations of information. So when real yields were negative, dollars in 10 or 20 years time are worth more than dollars today, which means that the stories you tell about the indefinite future matter a lot in PV terms. And because there's no data point you can look at to validate them other than pretty soft stuff, basically the only thing people go on is what does everybody else think? And so that process of when the discount rate is really, really low or negative, the expectations formation loop can really go hog wild. I think that's really interesting. And it probably matters a lot about the tenor of the stories you're telling. And then, of course, as the discount rate changes, the market's going to have a greater or lesser opinion about stories that you're telling 10 years out. So I think that's one thing. And then the second thing is, although Buffett says in the long term, the market is a weighing machine, in different assets, the weighing machine operates at different wavelengths. In spot electricity, it operates at wavelength zero. It is not storable, basically. 
S&D matches, and that's that. In gold, the storage cost is super cheap relative to the value. So what needs to true up fundamentals in the gold market? I don't know. It's like basically a Rorschach test of what people's opinions are. <laughs> that doesn't mean the duration is always constant. But that idea of basically the interplay between the cost of capital, the wavelength at which fundamental realizations are playing out, and the non-stationary wavelength of expectations feedback, that's basically, I think, something that we're spending a lot of time thinking about. It may also impact whether short-term trend or long-term trend matters more, right? In terms of the informational content, like what is a trend? The trend is the market telling you with its price, I want to go to a new place. But that might be different depending on the wavelength of the asset you're trading. And so that's really something that we're spending a lot of time on, and it's intimately related to the cost of capital. Charlie, this has been a fascinating discussion, both from a high-level thesis and from a bottom-up practitioner in the weeds perspective. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.